part of the reason for the letter of Hebrews is to make the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant perfectly clear. Remember, these believers are being tempted by something very specific to go back under the old covenant and its law in order to have assurance and to gain a right standing with God. That's why the letter is so theological. You you fight error with truth, and truth comes from God's word concerning his son, Jesus Christ. It comes from the Bible. So the author's strategy is to paint the biblical picture of both of these covenants, the covenant with Israel that was made at Mount Sinai through Moses, the words of which are the law, and the covenant ratified by Jesus Christ at Mount Calvary, the words of which are, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The author's strategy is to make the distinction between the two so that it's clear that the new covenant is so much better, so superior, so supreme. Why? So that they'll be able to get their master of divinity degree? No. So they will endure to the end. Believing that our assurance and security in salvation come from our obedience, whether we try to abide under the old covenant law or just to live by rules and standards in general, means, as the author reveals, we are actually drifting from the truth. We are neglecting the one thing that gives us assurance and security, the message of great salvation that comes to us in Christ through the gospel. That's what the new covenant contains. The promise from God that he will fully save all who believe and place their hope and faith in the high priest of that covenant, the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. That promise is better than any of the promises that were made under the old covenant. Hebrews has been written so that we will believe the promise of God to save us completely through Jesus Christ because he is so much better than any alternative, including the old covenant. You and I do not cling to anything for our salvation, but the promise of God to do what he says he will do for us in Christ. No amount of effort, no amount of effort, no amount of good works or good intentions will save us. Those things will never be the source of our salvation or of our hope. So, beloved, please understand that's why Hebrews was written, because we don't naturally agree with that. Our souls do not default into grace. Our default system is works and performance. We are constantly tempted to secure our own salvation and assurance through our performance. Constantly. And it's not necessary. God has made promises. An infinitely better promise than if you do these things, you will live. And if not, you will die. Both of those things are promises. And there are better promises than those in Christ. Proving that is the point of these next two chapters. And we'll zero in on just on chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews 8.12 is the source and reason for our salvation. And there are no others. None. We are not meant to simply know that the new covenant contains a better promise for us. We were meant to rest in the beauty of God's better promise for us in Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you, Lord, for putting this in your word, for giving us this truth, this information. And I pray, Father, that you would soften our hearts, kill our arrogance, our pride, our over-amplified self-confidence this morning, Lord, as we go through your word together. Lord, would you enable everyone to hear and to understand and to believe Lord, would you please overshadow me completely, remove me from the picture that your word might become clear and plain by the power of your spirit, if you will be with me. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let let me read the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 8 to you. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. You have to love the accessibility of the author here, the clarity this paragraph gives. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Yes, thank you. I wish every paragraph in the Bible started like that. The point in what we are saying is this. What's the point? We have a high priest like the one he's described in chapter 7. We have one seated at the right hand in heaven, at the right hand of God the Father, ministering by his perfection and victory for us in the true holy of holies, the throne room of Almighty God. We have that. He is so perfect. His sacrifice and obedience and gifts are so sufficient for us. All the other priests under the old covenant, they served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Jesus is the heavenly thing. Jesus is what the pattern given to Moses was based on. The old covenant was a schematic whose substance was Christ. Copies and shadows show us what an original looked like, but they aren't the original. The minute even one copy is made, just one, the quality drops just a little bit. And shadows exist because light is blocked. So shadows show that something is there But the shadow is only showing the shape that is there. It's not showing the substance of what is there. The old priestly system was set up to serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That perfect high priest in his eternally sufficient ministry who had not yet come during the time of the old covenant. But the author has been laboring to prove the point that now this priest, the substance, the original, has come. The copy and shadow have served their purpose because the substance has come. Look at 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ, he's the one, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the author is showing that priesthoods are connected to their covenants, right? That's 6 and 7. And the priesthood ministered by Christ is as superior to the old priesthood as the covenant his priesthood mediates is superior to the old covenant. 
Because in verse 7, for, as it says, the old covenant was faulty. God sent Jesus because the old covenant was insufficient to accomplish what God desired by making when he made covenants with us. The old covenant could not, that is, secure salvation for us to the extent that it made us God's people forever. That's the point of a covenant. This does not mean that God made a mistake, that he came up with a faulty system and it had to change because he found out over time, oh man, this this isn't going to work. That's not the way in which it's faulty. It's faultiness. The old covenant's faultiness is not in its design, in its details. Its faultiness is in its inability to accomplish the goal for which you make a covenant. What it means is that the old covenant then had a specific purpose and it was not to secure a people for God's own possession. It was to show what was necessary to secure a people for God's own possession. This is what the New Testament scriptures reveal, but what was also, if we're reading carefully, implied throughout the era, the the Old Testament era of the Old Covenant, as we'll read in just a moment, the author is telling his audience, right, you, you, you all are trying to relate to God through a covenantal system that was faulty, that was unable to do what you think you can make it do, secure your salvation, obtain God's promise. The promises of that Old Covenant didn't have the power to secure your salvation or grant your assurance. The terms of the old covenant were the one who does them shall live by them. That has no power to enable a person to do them. What the command, the law reveals, finally, ultimately, and was intended to reveal, is that we are powerless to obey God perfectly and completely and are therefore unable to secure our salvation or have any assurance through obedience. We cannot obtain the promises of God by our own effort or ability. The Bible has been showing us this since the first pages of the Bible. We learned this in the garden when we had just one rule, one, and we could not keep it. Even before the DNA was tainted by sin, think about that. Even before we had a sin nature, we could not obey God perfectly. What does that mean? Among other things, it means we are powerless as human beings to obey a holy God. We can't do it. If we couldn't do it when we were untainted, how in the world do we think we can do it when we are tainted? God is too holy for that. We learn this when Sarah said to Abraham, hey, I have an idea of how we can make this promise come to us, right? It was a disaster. We learned this when after the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and all the manna and the quail and a cloud by day and a fire by night, they still could not obey long enough or well enough to enter the promised land. They could not do it. God's command, do this and live, is holy and righteous and good. He is right in giving it. We, however, are not holy and righteous and good, so we cannot keep such a command. That promise, do this and you will live, that hits our flesh and falls dead at our feet 
That promise does not have the power to accomplish for us what it promises we can have if we keep it. We're going to need a better high priest mediating a much better covenant that has much better and more powerful promises if we are ever going to be God's people and rest with Him in joy and peace for all eternity, which has always been the goal of all creation for mankind. Look at the first part of verse 8. For, because He finds fault with them when He says, let me back up to 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For, He finds fault with them when he says, I think what God finds fault with in the context of verse 8 is the promises that were a part of the old covenant. I think in the flow of 6 to 8, that's how we're meant to read the word for in verse 8 because that's precisely the point he's trying to make, that a better covenant with better promises was sought due directly to the faultiness of the old covenant and its promises. What we're about to read is the longest quote from the Old Testament that there is in the New Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is 8 through 12. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That is a heavy sentence. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So just parenthetically, we don't test each other's salvation, right? You see that? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For, here's why, they'll all know me. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, what we're learning here is that the author of Hebrews does not look at the Old Testament as a collection of unrelated moral stories. He sees the whole Old Testament as the unfolding story of Jesus, which is how we should be reading the Old Testament. It turns out that the Old Testament itself actually anticipated the coming of a new covenant during the period of the Old Covenant. A better one than the one made with Israel at Sinai. There are many places throughout the prophets where they're speaking of a new covenant, a new day, a new era. Here, the author recalls Jeremiah 31. This promise from God to make a new covenant came during the reign of King Josiah in the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. Israel had failed to keep the covenant, and now, as was part of the covenant agreement, they had come under the curses and had been kicked out of the land. Exile. See that here. That was part of the old covenant promises. Under the terms of the old covenant, if you disobeyed, God would not be breaking the covenant to say, I no longer have any concern for you. Those were the terms of the covenant, if you broke it. Curses were a part 
of the old covenant promises. Wouldn't it be nice to have a covenant that promised no curses for the people under it if they blew it? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be better? Through his prophet Jeremiah, God promised a day in the future when God would restore his people and usher in a new covenant. Now, since Jeremiah was written about a thousand years after the old covenant and anticipated the coming of this new covenant, that has to mean that the old covenant was never permanent. It was temporary. It was only a means to an end. We have to view the old covenant as something that was incomplete and temporary, something that by God's design intentionally pointed beyond itself to the coming of a new covenant. So when Jesus said to his disciples the night before he died, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, that's a big deal. That's the fulfillment of prophecy. The shift in history that the coming of Jesus and the establishment of a new covenant brought was huge. The early church struggled with that shift for years. That's part of the reason we have Hebrews. I think so much of what we struggle to understand today in many parts of the New Testament is because we're not fully, still not fully, grasping the changes that took place with the coming of Jesus. So much of the New Testament is about how the disciples and the early church were trying to come to terms with everything that Jesus' work on the cross meant for us. What, what was the shift? It was a shift in how we related to God. A shift in relating to God through the old covenant to relating to Him now through this new covenant and its better promises. For example, they talked about circumcision. They realized that was no longer necessary. Now Gentiles, non-Jewish people were going to be brought into the one people of God. The apostle Peter needed a vision from heaven to get that. He needed that level of of clarity being proclaimed to him from heaven. Peter, wake up. This is the way it is now. In Acts 15, the council debated whether non-Jewish believers have to keep the law of Moses. Judaizers wanted all believers to follow the law of Moses. Galatians, much of Romans is written to correct that mistake. There were issues of personal convictions that came about. Strong versus weak believers and what you were allowed to do and could you eat meat sacrifice to idols should you still observe the sabbath many of the differences between christian groups to this day beloved revolve around understanding the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant for example we here do not baptize infants because of the way we understand the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant that's why we don't do that here while many of our brothers and sisters do baptize infants because of the way they understand the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. That's what all of that is rooted in. But this text is here clearly. There's no debate to prioritize the New Covenant, to make a distinction, to tell us that it's not only completely different from the Old it's far superior to the old and better than the old. A break has been made. Look at verse 12 again. For I will be... What's the ground of this new covenant? Is it the performance of the people in it? Is that where the difference is? Right? It, it, is it because, well, now we have the Spirit, we can keep ourselves in the covenant. No, 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 no. What is the grounds of the new covenant? Why is it so much better? For God says, because... I will be merciful toward their iniquities now. And I will remember their sins no more. 
Beloved, that is what makes the new covenant so different from and superior to the old. The promise in the new covenant is this. God will be merciful toward our iniquities and not count our sins against us ever again. Our sin then, as we continue to struggle in the new covenant, will not get us cursed. Because God changed and because he's no longer offended by sin? No. Because in this new covenant, we have a high priest who is ministering for us on our behalf forever. And he is perfect in his righteousness and in his sacrifice. That's why his sacrifice at the cross was so sufficient. It only needed offered up once and it was for all. His ministry, as he said earlier, isn't happening on the earth because there would have to be repeated again and again and again. His ministry takes place in heaven, in the true temple, the one that God built, not the copy that men built. It's all the tabernacle and the temple were copies. Don't get excited about copies. Right? Get excited about the original. His blood washes away all our sin. His righteousness replaces all our disobedience now and forever. When we falter, when we fail, when we sin, we don't get thrown out of the covenant people. We receive no curses because we have such a high priest. In this covenant, the people under it reap what Jesus has sown. Our high priest, our king. Verse 12 is why no one in this covenant will ever be lost. It's because of verse 12. It's not because these covenant members now will be miraculously sinless, miraculously sinless. It's because God will be merciful to them and not hold their sins against them. He will not count it against our record. In this covenant, the new covenant, there will never be a verse 9. There are no new covenant curses. Never said to the church, all right, I want you to, we're going to divide up. I want this side to yell out all the blessings. I want this side to yell out all the curses, just so we're clear. Now, there's one scream being yelled over us right now. Do you know what it is? It is finished. And Jesus is the one yelling it. In the new covenant, God is saying, I will be merciful to you when you strike. I'll be merciful to you. I'll know, I, I won't remember your sins. That is, I will not act towards you according to the fact that you still sin. doesn't mean he literally forgets. It means he chooses not to hold them over us. It's not that under the old covenant you were saved by works and under the new covenant you're saved by grace. It's that under the new covenant there is a perfect high priest who has offered up himself as the perfect sufficient sacrifice for my sin and will never stop praying for me to make it home to the father and if the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much what do the prayers of christ avail for his people there is now someone standing between us and god that can meet his unchanging standard of righteousness and holiness that's the difference, right? That's the difference. That wasn't there under the old covenant. All that was there under the old covenant was this ministry from the line of Aaron where it was a sacrifice for this, certain way for this, certain way for that, certain way for that, and 
God is going to choose through those to, you know, to look over these sins, but, but they're not removing them. They're not removing the guilt. We'll find that here in Hebrews. They're not cleansing the conscience, which is one of the points of the new covenant. And yet we continue to walk around so guilty and burdened by our lack of goodness. The old covenant wasn't enacted on those kinds of promises. Why? Because God wanted the world to know, listen to me please, that if His covenant love for us and covenant concern for us was based on our behavior, we would never have the security necessary to be His people. Ever. We would never be able to get as close as Jesus brings us to God. But the new covenant was enacted on those kinds of promises. The covenant that brings us closer, God says, is better. If all of God's plans and purposes for the universe had been heading towards this, we need to know what's better about it. We need to know what the big deal is, right? Look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Obsolete is a very important word for your souls, beloved. Very important. The old covenant is not around anymore. None of it. Look at this text. I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. The new covenant is not passive towards the old covenant, is it? It makes it obsolete. It doesn't bring it along and carry it or continue it. It obliterates it. They do not run parallel to each other. Look at the text. Right? It's obsolete, but it's still there. No, then you don't say obsolete. At the time Hebrews was written, right up near 70 AD, even the symbols and the emblems of the old covenant, the visible ones, namely the temple, were literally about to vanish away. The new covenant is so glorious because of its high priest. It's so glorious because of what it accomplishes that it completely eclipses the old covenant and its priesthood. It completely overrides all of its promises to such an extent that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11 about the old covenant. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory which surpasses it. That's how we should be looking at the Old Covenant. Instead, we're obsessed with it. We're obsessed with it. It's so cool and neat. It's obsolete because it wasn't that great by God's design. And we, we, we're begging to get back under it. Like we're begging to get to follow one of the laws. Just give me one of them that I got to keep. I got. I, I still got to do that, and it has no glory at all. None. We live in the days of a better covenant, enacted on better promises. In the new covenant, sin has been fully and finally dealt with. There is full atonement in Jesus. That expression back in verse 8, I will establish a new covenant in the Hebrew language shows very clearly that God isn't simply confirming or upholding the old covenant in some kind of covenant renewal. 
he is inaugurating a completely new covenant. So the new covenant is not the old covenant, right? Circumcision is not baptism, right? You, you under, that's why we believe these things here. The new covenant is not the old covenant. It's a new covenant. And in verse 13, that means the Israelite old covenant has been rendered obsolete as a code or a formalized agreement as a covenant. Because there was one faithful Israelite who kept the covenant and by keeping it, fulfilled it and therefore ended it. Jesus did not come and void the old covenant. He came and fulfilled the old covenant by keeping it. It's done. All the promises in the old covenant that were made to Israel, they failed. They all go to the one who didn't. Jesus Christ, you and I are in him. This is the scripture, beloved. So as a believer in him, this one faithful, obedient human Israelite, As a believer in Him, as my forgiveness, as my righteousness, I am not bound by one millimeter of the law. Because it was part of an agreement between God and Israel that is now obsolete and isn't there to apply to me anyway. My relationship with God is based on and defined by this new covenant. It doesn't mean there's no righteousness. No good works to be done. It means that God has revealed his righteousness in full in Jesus. And he is my standard and my covenant keeper. I am still called from within the new covenant to love my neighbor. The whole law is fulfilled in that which would mean. Right. Well, the Bible doesn't say don't murder anymore. How do you know not to murder? Because it tells you to love your neighbor. Kind of hard to love him when you murder him. Right. You see, you see adultery, stealing, lying. None of those things are now permissible. That's not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is that, look, you're a bunch of liars and thieves and adulterers and murderers. Because if you don't shoot the gun, you hate the person and want to shoot the gun. You can't do it. So my son came and did it. And I'll accept you if you jump on his back. I will not accept you if you just say, yeah, I need Jesus, but I also need to make sure I don't do these things. Then your confidence will never last because your performance will never be good enough. We, I saw the quote again this week. I saw it again. Thank God I saw it again. A lady asked Martin Luther one time, why do you preach the gospel every week? He said, because you forget it every week. Right? That That's... I, I, I don't mean that to be insulting. And I don't mean I'm up here, you're down there, I get it right, live like me. Don't live like me. Look to Christ. I'll follow you right into the hole I'm going into if I'm in charge of my life. The righteousness of God has never changed. Ever. He hasn't loosened up His holy requirement that much. What has changed is that now, even when I fail to live up to the standard that is over me, God won't kick me out of his covenant people. That's the only difference. That's the only difference. The blood and the righteousness and the intercession of Jesus for me are way too strong for that. 
That's the point of this text. May God help us see that Jesus is so much better than everything else because he administers this new covenant for us. That's precisely what makes him so much better. That's my goal for our church. I said a couple weeks ago, I don't have a vision for the church. That was kind of a misnomer. My vision for us is that we would all believe God's word in Christ together. And when one of us is not doing it, we'll help them do it again. That's really it. You know, and I, let me say this real quick. I, I've been here just, what, over a year now? A year and three or four months, I think. I know I'm not putting my foot down on the gas in hardly anything. So maybe people are thinking, what, what are we going to do? What's next? This is my goal. And I'm just really reluctant to do anything that might interrupt this. Yeah, I have a bunch of ideas in my head. Of course I do. I have a lot of things in my head. I'm just, I've seen it. And I know you have too. I've watched churches crumble because you put your foot on the gas too fast, too heavy. So I just, this is what we've got to get because all the other stuff is peripheral. It really is. This, this is where this is where we need to be. Right? Hebrews is here to give us the confidence and hope that come from a new covenant. See how important theology is? See how important doctrine is? We need to believe the gospel. Beloved, a, a lack of security leads to unrighteousness. And it will cause us to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus. Just like if in a marriage, if I said to my wife, I celebrated 17 years with her yesterday. I love her so much. I I leaned over to her while we were singing and I said, I am the luckiest man on the planet. I believe it with all my heart. I love this woman so much. Could you imagine if I said to her, now, I love you, but whether or not I'll keep loving you depends on whether or not you make me happy all the time. Now, we laugh, right? Because that would be insane. Tell me who isn't saying that in their heart. Of of course we are. Like, I mean, do you understand what it is like as a human being to hear this? Nobody else is telling the truth when they say this to us. Only Jesus is telling us the truth. Don't go home and yell at your spouse because they're lying to you. That's not the point of this. All right? We don't want to lie. I don't want to lie. But like, what can I ultimately do? can't complete her. I can't save her soul. I can't be her Messiah. Right? I can't even be the husband Ephesians 5 calls me to be. Christ can and is. And he is all we have. Do you know how hard it is to do well when you doubt your security in something? It makes us neurotic. It makes us fearful of everything. We can't enjoy anything because I I, I don't want to slip up. I don't want to mess up. We treat, we we hold Jesus up in contempt when we live like this as Christians. I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to blow it. No, of course we don't want to blow it, but we're going to blow it. Okay, beloved, 
Nobody here is getting in because they do so well. Nobody. Right? Jesus is saying, like, like that's the problem in Hebrews. They look at him thinking it's just, it's not enough. It's not enough. So what are they thinking? We gotta up the rules. We gotta up the discipline. We gotta up the devotion. That's always the answer when we see somebody struggling, isn't it? You gotta get back into church. Okay. Show up. It'll change everything. No, it won't. Right? You need to get, you need to get more committed. No. Cause then you know what you'll rest in? Your commitment. And it will falter. When you struggle, when somebody you love is struggling, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know that their struggles do not get them thrown out of the covenant people of God. They need to have security and assurance. Those things lead to life. Everything else leads to death because that's all anything else can produce. If we try to relate to God as though we're still under the old covenant, as though whether or not he keeps his promises to us depends ultimately on our performance, we'll fall away. We'll either come to trust in our righteousness as sufficient enough or realize we aren't righteous enough. Both of those things deny Christ and reveal we never really believed in him for our salvation. If, however... We continually relate to God as though we are under this new covenant that has been enacted on better promises. We will never fall away. That's the point of the text. Jesus brings us all the way home. We are not meant to simply know that the new covenant contains a better promise for us. We're meant to rest in the beauty of that better promise God has made to us in Christ. It's there to rest in saints will you rest in Jesus this morning will you believe in the beauty of God's better promise in his son you who don't know him at all that are with us this morning don't believe in him at all for your salvation will you stop rejecting him this morning will you quit believing he won't take you because you're too bad Or you don't need him because you're good enough. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ has bridged this divide through the cross. His blood washes away our sins. His righteousness replaces our disobedience. Will you repent of your sins and embrace Jesus as your Savior now? church will we repent of our sins of unbelief and doubt and embrace Jesus Christ as our savior you see the answer is always the same for everybody this all started this section with the author telling us that those who believe have entered his rest shortly before Keith Green musician from the late 70s early 80s great songwriter just a prolific songwriter wrote the song my dad always says he wants played at his funeral my son my son why are you striving you can't add one thing to what's been done for you do you believe that this morning do you believe that I hope you do you're my people 
I love this church. This is my people. Right? We love it here. Why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. Jesus did it all while he was dying. And God raised him from the dead. Everybody in this room must believe in Jesus to be saved. So do it. Do it. If if inside, when I say that, something in there says, that's right, that is the Holy Spirit. It is not your flesh. Our flesh would never want that. So believe where you are. Come forward this morning. Tell me about it. I'll pray with you. Somebody will pray with you. All right? We're going to sing. We're going to pray. I'll be down front. If you need to come for any reason, come to Jesus. Don't come to the front. I mean, physically, if you want to come to the front, come to the front. But the front isn't going to save you. Jesus will save you. Come to him. And rest. Rest, believer. That's another way to come to Jesus. Rest. All right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, God, so much for who you are. I thank you for Moundsville Baptist Church. I thank you for Moundsville. I thank you for Glendale and Benwood and McMechan and Washington Lands and Wheeling. Elm Grove, all the places I'm forgetting in between, around. Father, there are souls there. There are sheep that are lost. There are sheep in here that are bleeding for comfort. Send your son by your word in the power of your spirit to save, to make alive, to heal, to comfort, to give rest. I ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you for coming this morning, everybody. I do want to invite you back out tonight. We'll gather at 6.30. We'll exalt Christ again. All right, come and hear about him in music and in the word. If God will be with me, being here, let me pray and you'll be this. Thank you so much for the time you've given us this morning. Lord, we praise you for your mercy. God, we trust your word to do what your word can do. Father, I pray that we never trust in what we can see with our eyes. Your word is at work in everyone that's here in one way or another, even as they go this morning. Watch over everyone, Lord. I pray for their grace, for their peace. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.